true leadership means you're you're in the game. People don't see you as someone that won't do the same thing that they do. That was an important inflection point because I felt like they really appreciated me for doing that because I could have just gone home and come back the next day and could see what was shipped out. But I felt like if I was present, prove to them that I was in the game with them. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Shelly Stewart. Shelly is the Vice President of Sourcing and Logistics and the Chief Procurement Officer at the DuPont Company, serving a portfolio of products and solutions in more than 90 countries. Shelly played a significant role in helping remake DuPont through the merger with Dow and the spin into three standalone companies. His strategic leadership has helped deliver more than a billion dollars in savings. Before joining DuPont, Shelley was Senior Vice President of Operational Excellence and Chief Procurement Officer at Tyco International. Earlier in his career, Shelley held leadership positions at a number of other companies. Shelley serves on the boards of the Howard University and on the advisory board of Drexel University Center of Corporate Governance. In 2011, the United States Secretary of Commerce appointed Shelley to its National Advisory Council on Minority Business Enterprises. It would literally take the first half of the podcast if I tried to cover the comprehensive list of all the other boards Shelley served on and his various leadership awards. I first met Shelley when I facilitated a meeting of the Purchasing Roundtable, a group of Fortune 50 chief procurement officers. We have since collaborated on several projects, including the launch of his large synergy project with Brad Gray, the chief procurement officer of the Dow Chemicals Company. I have found Shelley to be an intuitive leader and with unique ability to quickly grasp a complex picture and to lead a large-scale transformation effort. He is here today to share his current insights. Shelley, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, uh, thank you very much, and thank you for that comprehensive introduction. <laughs> That's what happens when you, uh, you hang around long enough, your, your resume continues to get long and drawn out. But thank yeah. you very much. Indeed, indeed. It's, it's great to uh, develop this conversation with you. So let me dive right in and ask you, what are you working on right now inside your responsibility to delivering on the Dow DuPont merger promise? Right, that's a great question. And um, so for the last, uh, all we merged with Dow um, September 1st, 2017, for the last two quarters, our teams have been working on over 500 projects to deliver synergy savings. And so those projects were built over the previous 18 months prior to our merger with Dow in a clean room with uh, uh, 
third party and some of our, our uh, retirees that really understood the data. And we were re- off to a really fast start uh, when we were able, when we merged um, and we're delivering ahead of schedule. And we're going, you know, I think this will going to be a historic uh, activity that we're engaged in with our teams. The other thing is um, we're going to split into three companies, the Dow company, Corteva, which is a new, or Corteva, which is a new um, ag company, which is a combination of uh, Dow AgroScience and our crop uh, seed business, and DuPont, which will be a new DuPont, which will include uh, some of our, most of our DuPont businesses and some Dow comparable businesses that came over. Um, And my role is to help the two new CPOs, Craig Reed and Miguel Gonzalez, think about and build good strategies and good teams as we move forward here uh, so they can have uh, world-class procurement organizations as they roll into their new companies. So how did you approach such a humongous and challenging project as this merger? Carefully, I will say that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But but the truth of the matter is um, we're very systematic about the approach. And the, the wonderful opportunity I have is Brad Gray, who's like my counterpart over at Dow. The fortunate thing I would say is that Brad and I think very similar about procurement, about our role, and about how we had to go about this task to execute. And so um, I mentioned the clean teams. We put those clean, the clean team together and, and put all our data in that space. And the opportunity we had is the merger took longer than we thought it was going to take because of regulatory uh, approvals around the world. And we used that time, that delay, to have tabletop meetings every couple of weeks to make sure we were diving deeper and understanding all the obstacles and opportunities that were in front of us. And I think that helped us really come out of the chute fast and deliver savings early. And uh, I, I think to the amazement of our leadership team here. Very nice. So, so the history, Shelley, of large mergers is actually quite depressing because most mergers do not deliver on the initial promise. And I know that you have had this in mind. And so how have you worked to make this effort a success in terms of what are some of the, the big lessons that you have implemented in your collaboration with Brad Gray to make sure that you go through phases of, of challenge and, and conflict and that you work through these in the best and, and smartest way? You might remember this because you helped us think about how we get our people on board. Right. And so one of our activities we did was bring our teams together before the merger, but really not to talk about synergies, but to talk about how we work together. And out of that meeting came a theme about one team, one goal, three winning divisions. So we created a mantra that we could rally our our teams around that I think helped us. Because if you think about Dow and DuPont and the competitive spirits of those two companies and the people that work in those companies, we had to find a way sort of saying we're not competing against each other, um, but we're, we're working together for one goal. So we work on our teams to develop that strategy and that spirit, and it's, it, it served us well. I think the other 
thing that we've done is our supplier community has been very supportive. Truth of the matter is they want to be with three winning companies when this is over with. Very few, if any of these companies, have we had to change out as we pursue synergy savings through our combined $40 billion procurement spend. Working and collaborating and really thinking this through ahead of time, what are the obstacles? How do we respond quickly? We have a very, I would say, organized process of a PMO, Program Management Office, and we meet weekly, and we've been meeting weekly since September of 2017, and we review where we are. And the the truth of the matter of this is we have to be credible about the work that we do and the savings that we're putting up. Otherwise, you know, no one will believe it, right? So we're getting audited as we speak, and and the audits are coming out pretty well. And given the fact that we have over 500 projects, you're always going to find a few things that need to be corrected. But overall, I think we've done a really good job at um, preparing our teams, having good ground rules, having a, taking a systematic approach, uh, managing through the PMO, um, and working closely with our, our peers at Dow. So I believe part of what you are describing is about the, the philosophy and the DNA of, of your approach where you are looking to convert what could become adversarial relationships, first Dow DuPont and then with a supplier, a community and a network and convert those potential conflicts into win-win conversations, reframing those conversations in a way that, that points to a mutual beneficial future. Correct. And the whole concept of reframing the conversation is important. And you, you've, you've helped us think about that in a different way. And I do think that we've worked with our teams to reframe the conversation about how you think about each other and how you work together. I think it wasn't so hard for us because at the end of the day, procurement people, no matter what company they're in, are, are thinking about doing this job in the same way. It's been proven out with, with our teams. And by the way, every team is co-led by a Dow person and a DuPont person. It also forces them to work together to come to a mutual beneficial conclusion for both parties. So it's in the structure as well as in the, in the, in the way we think about it. When you reflect on your career journey, at, at what point do you believe you, you became aware in a conscious and focused way? And you may tell me it's, it has always been there for you as part of your upbringing. Because, but what I'm interested in is this sense of it's not just about getting the work done. And even if it is about getting the work done, in the beginning and in the end, it's people. You're leading people. So thinking carefully about the the people that you lead and the ecosystem that you are creating for them, if you try to trace that awareness to earlier career point, what would you trace it to? I had a job at United Technologies, and it was at a division called Hamilton Standard at that time is Hamilton Sunstrand now. I was director of electronical procurement, and I became vice president of uh, all procurement for the division. I had a group of people. Actually, it's interesting. One of the guys that I'm taught that was there is actually doing some consulting for 
us here today, but he ran the shipping and receiving department. And every end of the quarter, we had to get everything out at the last minute. Things would show up all night long. And what I realized, and I would go home, I lived near the, I would go home, check in with my family. I had a young family at the time. But then I would buy pizzas or sandwiches and go back to work with the people that had to pack and ship the product. And I learned then that true leadership means you're, you're in the game. People don't see you as someone that won't do the same thing that they do. Mm-hmm. And that was an important inflection point because I felt like they really appreciated me for doing that because I could have just gone home and come back the next day and check to see what was shipped out. But I felt like if I was present, that, that proved to them that I was in the game with them. Right. So I think if I think about that's the inflection point in my mind where I really realize you, you have to walk the talk in order to be a leader. Right? Yes. You just can't come to work every day and sit in your office and not um, and not be engaged with people. So yes. It's important. So let's trace to an even earlier stages, let's say to the beginning of your journey. Describe to me a scene from earlier in life, from childhood or, or any circumstance, and, and to give me a sense of what inspired you when you were growing up. Interesting enough, I came from a, a neighborhood where there were, there's an African-American, I would say middle-class neighborhood, but those don't exist these days in the context that I'm describing in. And now I see the picture of my block in my head. The next door neighbor to the left of me was a bus driver. The house on the end across the street from me was an African-American civil engineer, a tailor, a fireman, a barber, a black architect, African-American doctors behind me and the two houses behind me. So what inspired me was a community that I grew up in because everybody got up and went to work every day. And no matter how hard they worked, they were accomplishing things. And including my parents, both of them worked on their jobs 37 years. And for me, I only knew that, right? And I only knew that people were expecting me to achieve. And living in that neighborhood, I realized I could be anything I wanted to be. Mm. And it was, that was an important piece of my upbringing. And then, by the way, I didn't realize that when I got to be an adult. I realized that when I was a young person, right? Um, because the civil engineer across the street from me eventually had his own company with another uh, African-American civil engineer that lives on the next block. And he was my math tutor. I mean, so I got to interact with people that it respected and um, uh, really wanted to be like. And so there was an opportunity for me. Well, I'm, I don't know if other folks have been had that exposure, but um, I think a little bit of that is missing nowadays. I had great role models, including my parents, but the whole neighborhood. And, you know, that conversation about takes a village. Well, the neighborhood I came, came from was a village. Beautiful uh, scenery you painted there, and it makes me realize that the sceneries we grow up with become then the topography of meaning and the topography of values that shape our adult life. Describe what happens next. What is, how are you coming out of that experience and, and shaping 
for yourself a career? What What is your first job and how do you get to that first job? That's an interesting story. So as a part of that growing up, I only knew that, and I was the first person in my family to go to college, but I didn't have a choice according to my dad and mother. So I went off to school and when I, and I actually was a journalism major and I'll tell a quick story. In order for me to go to school, I had a full scholarship and I had to go to school the day after I graduated from high school for a summer program. My dad took me up to Northeastern University and we were walking down the street and we ran into this tall man in front of the School of Criminal Justice and saying to us that, uh, hey, this is a new school. Criminal justice has just been open a few years and uh, it's a great social science program. And so we go up to his office and when I come out, my father pats me on the back and says, I like that man. You're a criminal justice major. So that's how I became a criminal justice major. And I, Dean Rosenblatt was his name. And he really looked out for me the whole time I was in school. And I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in criminal justice. And I was going to, and I did that over, you know, the, the six, six or seven years I was up in Boston and came back to New York and moved in my father's uh, downstairs apartment uh, that everybody comes through called 227B. I'm the oldest, so I was back first. And um, took a job with the county in contract development. I was out getting people jobs in various companies with a was called the CEDAR program. The government would pay money to start people off in in these companies, and then eventually they would get hired. And that job didn't pay very well. So my father said, "Look, I'm a my father worked at an aerospace company on Long Island, and he said I'm going to get you a job." So I go out for some interviews. I I end up getting a job in the the purchasing organization. Little did I know that that's kind of where they put people when they didn't know what to do with them, right? And so I sat next to the two-star general son who we were building the airplane for and the president of the company's son who both just both these guys had just graduated from college. Um, they put us in procurement and major subcontract. I had a contract background because of my coursework. So, um, but it was a great niche for me because it was, negotiations, communications, contract uh, writing, it all came together. I was there three years and a few people left and went up to United Technologies in Norwalk. And so I get a call from the two-star general son who left ahead of me and said, hey, oh, there, there are a bunch of jobs up here. You got to work really hard, but the pay is really good. So the rest of its history, I ended up working for United Technologies for 19 years. It was for sure the circuitous route. But sometimes that's how you get where you have to go. Path is not always straight. Well, in your story, it, it's an example of uh, the discipline, the profession found you rather than you found it. Exactly right. And nowadays, I'm out recruiting supply chain students from universities, right? Um, yes. So that people are actually, you know, it's not the dumping ground anymore for people's kids or somebody who's a non-performer. It is, it's a place you have to be trained and understand what the, the supply chain is really about um, because it isn't just about buying. It's, it's the supply chain for the company and how we impact that supply chain. So what would you say were um, the, the one or two biggest lessons and insights in, in your experience through those 19 years in, in one company? What, in addition to the procurement and supply chain discipline, what else are you learning at that stage of your career? I can tell you one thing. If I had to work at a company to start my career, United Technologies was the best place. They gave me 
the best training, both leadership skills and capabilities, exposure for travel. I mean, my, one of my first assignments with Norton Systems and when I went up to the UTC was building, managing a construction of a new building in New Hampshire that was militarizing um, computers. And I didn't know anything about construction. And they knew it. And they taught me. They put me with the right people. So my experience is tell people this whole thing about vertical learning to make sure you are taking assignments that are uh, adjacent to the to the skill set that you are focused on. In our case, in, in the procurement space, plan, source, make, and deliver, right? If you can get something in each one of those areas like I did, it makes for a really holistic career. And the other thing is it makes you a business person, not just a person in the procurement organization. So the training that I received from UTC, um, the exposure that I received from them, and as I've mentioned to you, my next big assignment, I think I told you this before, was working with the Israeli Air Force. When was that and what was the context? Describe to me when when was... uh, It was the mid-80s. Maybe eighty-seven, eighty-eight. It was it was the upgrade of the F four radar. So I had uh, two Israeli subcontracts, uh, Elta and uh, Mabat, and uh, responsible for um, the radome itself and a lot of the equipment that was going into the radome. I actually went to McDonnell Douglas and searched through the catacombs there to help find the drawings for the radome for the F four because it was an older airplane, and I bought a G two airplane to put to make a test airplane out of that to put a f4 radon on the front of it it's a pretty funny looking airplane by the way g2 with a f4 radon on a radon on it but it's a really exciting uh, opportunity and that that exposure to other cultures to other people i spent a lot of time in tel aviv and uh and working with the israeli air force and um as you know the, the, the they're serious Right, so um, it was a major learning for me, both culturally and from a technical standpoint of uh, enhancing my skills. So this idea of putting yourself in new learning situations, taking stretch assignments, expanding beyond and outside your comfort zone, is really a theme that you have taken time and again. And listen, the last few jobs I've had, I've even. I mean, look, I came to DuPont thinking this was going to be a four-year assignment. I could focus strictly on the procurement organization, sourcing and logistics organization, help them get better, and go on my way. Three years into it, we're spinning companies out. We're selling companies. We have an active as investor. And then my old boss from Tyco comes on the board, and next thing I know, he's CEO. And then the next thing I know, we're merging with Dow. And then yes. the next thing I know, and then the next thing I know is I'm on. We're on the hook to save a whole lot of money around the synergy savings, right, uh, for the company. And so, you know what? I love it. I love every minute of it. I mean, it was the same way at Tyco. We, it was a you know redo of a company and splitting a company up and and creating value for the shareholders as well as the people that work there. So how did you? I, I, I've been, okay. How did you get Sorry. to Tyco? Catch me up on the story from. You working in in United Technologies, and and how did you get from there to Tyco through two or three or four other companies? Just catch me up on the storyline of your career. 
I had the opportunity at UTC after I worked at Hamilton and I was a vice president. They were putting together a new um, organization at the corporate headquarters for United Technologies, and they brought in the CFO of Otis Elevated, one of the divisions, to be the new vice president of procurement. And he wanted to build a new organization out to, to do some work across the enterprise, across the multiple uh, companies inside of uh, UTC. And I was the procurement guy. He picked out of the organization. So I was the head of worldwide. I became the head of worldwide procurement for United Technologies and worked in that job for about five years. And we did so much. Um, and we, we had a, a whole lot of good press around saving a billion dollars. And we won the Medal of Excellence from Kimberly uh, Magazine. And I was getting recruited. Um, so I took a job at Raytheon for a, couple, a year or so and um, got recruited away from them by a former UTC person to go work for a British company called Invensys. And I uh, commuted between Boston and London. And, uh, and then that company was starting to sell off pieces. Things showed up because another UTC person that I used to work with called me and said, hey, look, Ed Brains just joined Tyco. He's building a new team. We'd like to talk to you about it. So I came to New York and, uh, and down on Park Avenue thinking I was going to work in New York City. And I thought that would be pretty cool. I uh, get this job. I'm in the first 10 people Ed hires. This is after Kozlowski ruined the company, went to jail. So Ed kind of fired everybody at the corporate office and including the board that hired him. And he was remaking the company. And I had a chance to be with him on that journey for nine years to, you know, remake Tyco. And, you know, we saved a billion dollars there, um, three billion, but a billion of it was in, in the procurement space over, over three years. And um, uh, it was an amazing journey, very similar to here. We spun out at the end uh, two companies and, and sold one to, uh, to another company. So very similar to this. And they're all, all those companies did well. I guess it's following me. So the essence of the story you're telling there is that one opportunity after another present itself to you through the, the network of peers and colleagues and, and friends. So there is something about the way you cultivate those networks and the way you maintain those relationships that brought to you one opportunity after another. Describe it or say, say a little more about what is it you do with people and, and how are you so effective with people that it, essentially it led to one opportunity after another? People often ask me about that particular thing. I have a pretty vast network of people, but it starts with, I like people. I, and it all starts there, and I build relationships. I do it because I enjoy people, not because I think something's going to happen. And the result of those relationships have been opportunities. I enjoy networking. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy young people. Um, you talked about my work at universities. Well, I work at I work with uh, Howard, as you mentioned. I work with the, do some work at the University of New Haven, where I got my MBA. I'm on the corporation board at Northeastern University, where I got my two undergraduate, my undergraduate degree and my first graduate degree. And so I put myself in a place that I can interact with people of all ages and, and um, capabilities. And, you know, I've been involved with the Institute of Supply Management. I was the chair of that board. And, and you do this, Shelley, because you enjoy it, because it's fun, not necessarily with, with a specific outcome in mind of what you will get from it. Well, I do it 
because I think I can help other people, right? So the university work I do, I do it because I want to be influencing the people that are behind me, right? And so I, you you know this, but I the supply chain program at Howard something I helped start, right? And it wasn't a, it wasn't a supply chain program that for undergraduate programs that ranked thirteenth in the country last year, and it's only fifteen years old. I've gotten a lot out of my life, and I think I am responsible for giving it back. Right. right. And um, and it's important to me. It, it, it's it makes me a whole person if I can give and receive. And, you know, at this point in my life, it's more about giving now than receiving. Yes. So the, there is a point through this career trajectory where you get to senior leadership responsibilities. And, and through that, the, there is this shift from you getting the job done to you essentially producing outcomes by leading teams through business challenges and, and opportunities. And through this process, you, you must be developing, I imagine, your philosophy and approach to how to effectively lead teams. And, and you already alluded to that, but describe a little more, give me another, another um, example of, of what helped you shape your leadership philosophy in terms of getting things done through other people? It's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you an experience I had. I was at, um, I think I was at Invensys, and we had one of these uh, personality tests where you're high eye. I don't know what that thing is called, but so I did it with my team. And what they told me was that I was in their detail too much. And I didn't realize it, but for me, I was used to doing Mm. not leading. And so that, I remember that moment when they said that to me and I said, wow, I don't want to be viewed that way. And that's not how I, what I think I'm doing, but if they're telling me I'm doing it, I must be. So I had to trust in the people that work for me and I've gotten better at it. Every job that I've had so much that people think, well, don't you want to know? about everything we're doing. I don't. I trust you. Right? Do your job. And if you need help, let me know. But I'm not going to check on you every five minutes to to make sure you are doing what you're getting paid to do. So that was a moment in time where I took the feedback that I had gotten and turned it and, and, and changed my behavior. And, and one of the things I did when I got here is look, we had a good procurement and logistics organization. But, you know, good is not good enough for me. So I created this concept. I went out and talked to the stakeholders, the business presidents, the suppliers, the people that work in here for me, and people they interact with. And my conclusion was, hey, everybody respects this group. So how do we go from being respected to admired? And I created that mantra and that journey with the team here. And I can tell you that we get benchmarked and this is, I'll be here six years in the beginning of July. And I can tell you, we get benchmarked for the procurement work we do, the supplier work, diversity work we do, practices we have in here and how we execute and, and do our training for our people. So very much on the journey to being coming admired. That's when people look in, look in at you and see how you do what you do 
want to use, take those as best practices. And so I think creating uh, a strategy that brings the organization along with you is really important. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. But that, I just had this thought in my head one day riding to work that how do I get this organization to turn in a different direction and move faster, more effectively, and, and help this company? And our journey from respect to respected to admired is, uh, has really helped us um, change the organization. To capture the, the earlier thread of what you were pointing to there, so the, the shift from doing to leading, you're saying, begins with trusting your people, trusting that they are there to do the job and you don't need to check after them, every, as you said, every five minutes. That is where you begin to promote yourself to a leader rather than a doer. You have to have confidence in yourself to do that because it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. And by the way, everyone doesn't know what to do, right? So you do have to help some, some of the people in your organization, but you also think it in a different way, right? So I was just describing to you earlier that as we move our organization into two companies here on the DuPont side, that we are promoting some of the people, giving them some bigger roles. And I just had one of the folks in my conference room and I, I said to the person, do you understand what this means? Uh, they said, yes. And then I said, well, how can I help you? Because it's important for you to know that I'm here to help you um, think this through. Think about what being going from a doer to a leader is. It's different. And how you use the people that work for you in an effective way. I, I think that it's our responsibility, by the way, as leaders to help the people turn them into leaders as, as they, be, as they, they begin to, to grow in the organization. The other thing I, I am big on is I am not, I do not want to be viewed as the procurement, the CPO. I want to be viewed as a business person. I know what makes this company run, not just what we buy. I understand the P&L. I understand the balance sheet. And I understand the impact that we have through working capital, through savings, uh, year-over-year savings, through cost avoidance. I understand how all of that impacts the company. That also, I think, shows people that you you are more than just a execution arm, that you are a leader uh, as well. And that's not just in my organization, but it's it's to the business businesses in this company as well. Would you say the the propulsions that drive that behavior and focus for you would be both just natural curiosity and the desire to to create the most impact you can? I would agree with that. And, and you know, I, I was talking to someone the other day about hiring people, and they said, what do you look for? I, I said, I look for intellectual curiosity. They don't have to know the subject matter. But if they're intellectually curious, I can teach them the subject matter. To your point, it, it is the curiosity, and I am a motivated person when it comes to doing this job. And I'm going to say I run to work every day, but given that I fractured my ankle early in the year, I, I, I kind of hobble to work every day, but I do it fast. <laughs> but to the point you are now making, it, it highlights one of the framings I have used in the last couple of years, which is that we used to hire 
people for what they know. But in this environment where everything so quickly continues to change and, and shape shifts, you really are hiring people not for what they know, but what you know they can learn. So yeah. it's more about the capacity to learn than what they know and that there is curiosity and readiness to step outside of the comfort zone and embrace uh, calculated risks and all of those entrepreneurial tendencies that you want to see in the people that, that work for you. You're exactly right. I mean, point you make is a very valid point and one that I've had difficulty with here because um, I think the case here was we must hire people that are like us, right? Come from the same backgrounds. And my belief is if the person is described the way you describe the person, I, we can teach them anything. Mm. They can learn. They can learn this. This isn't such a specific skill that we can't teach them, you know, and that is, that's an opportunity for our organization because that means we can hire different kinds of people with different backgrounds, right? That's the diversity of thought piece that makes good organizations great organizations. Indeed. Um, you have made Shelley mentoring and coaching others as you already sharing with us here today, a big part of your focus. I'm, I'm curious if the, there was a moment when you consciously said, I'm going to be the coach and, and the mentor to, to build the talent around me as an important part of, of my legacy, or it was more that you were already doing it naturally. And, and after that, you, you formulated that this was a, a core strategy of yours. I'm, I'm curious how that line of, of endeavor and, and uh, contribution evolved for you. It comes from my upbringing. Mm. In my house, when you walked in my house, there could be my parents' home. There would guarantee to be some new person that my father had met and was mentoring. I watched him do that my whole life. And it was just, just natural for me. to, If you see it happening, and those people turned out to be my friends as well. right? And so I watched it happen with him helped so many people, mentored so many people. I was going to say obligation, but it wasn't even an obligation. It was just what I was taught in my life. And I think it's, um, I think I was very blessed and fortunate to have a father that would share himself with other people, right? And that, uh, I watched that go on my whole life. And um, it, it's natural for me to do the same thing, believe it or not. I'm watching my son and he's doing the same thing, mm. which makes me, makes me feel even better. Yes. Quite extraordinary. The, the impact of those early upbringing experiences and how they shape who we become uh, later. Right. And, and you don't think about those things until later on. Cause you know, that question I've thought about that often. You know, why am I, why do I do what I do with people? And it, I retrospectively thought about it myself, and it was my dad. Give me an example of the kind of mentoring advice or coaching advice that you give to people that you mentor today when they are searching to find their direction uh, earlier in, in their career. The one I tell people is to manage your aspirations. Don't let your aspirations manage you. And, and by that, I mean, you are your best town crier. 
you need to let people know what you want next, not some wait for somebody to come and ask you. But at the same time, you've got to make sure you're packing your bag and learning everything you can learn in the role that you're in and not race to the next one. Because by, if you do that, by the time you get to my job, if you ever get to my job, there is a different subject matter every meeting. And you have to be prepared, right? And you have had that, you may, you have, have to have had an experience either to that situation or adjacent to that situation so you can help make decisions, right? So you can't yes. let your aspirations get ahead of you and, and shortchange you because you move too fast. Because I've seen people move too fast and 99.9% of them crash and burn. Yes. So you need to learn learn as much as you can when you're in whatever job you're in, but also make sure people know what you're thinking about next or that you have thoughts about what's next. Because if you sit there and wait for somebody to show up and ask you, I was that way. I was sort of the pain in the neck guy to my boss at Norton who really, really cared for cared about me. And, um, he actually was a story that close friend of mine who got promoted to the corporate office in a role that I thought I should have gotten. And when I went to my boss, he said, I told him not to give you that job because that's not the right job for you. You're going to get stuck if you get in that job. And guess what? He was right. Hmm. Um, it was a, it was a supply diversity role, the corporate headquarters. And he said to me, they're going to be working for you one day. That's why I didn't give you that job. And he turned out to be spot on. Of all the things you've been involved in and all that you've created and enabled, what provides you with the greatest sense of uh, pride and joy as, as you look back? I'm sitting here um, about to write a recommendation for an organization that I belong to, the Executive Leadership Council, for a young man that I've known since he was an inroads student at United Technology, and now he's a senior vice president at Boeing. That makes me proud and makes me feel really good when I can watch people that I've known most of their lives achieve extreme success. And by the way, I've helped along the way mentor, steer, listen, be, be a sounding board for them. And that I get so much joy out of other people's success, um, particularly the people that I, I think I've helped along the way. That is the uh, fuel that is in my tank that drives me every day. That's powerful. Shelly, this, uh, this was a, a rich exploration uh, with you today. As, as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? I mean, first of all, thank you for um, inviting me to have this conversation. Because you know, before you have these conversations, you have to think about yourself and about what you want to talk about. But I, I think that the true thing I believe is if you are finding a way to be the best you can be at what you do and also being a servant leader, I think life will be great for you. I think it's important not just to focus on yourself, um, but to focus on others. And that doesn't mean not to focus on yourself because I think you need to be the best in what you do. And you got to figure out 
how you become the best. I don't have a recipe for that. But I also also think that servant leadership um, will help round your life out um, and, and make you a better person. The rewards will come to you. Servant leadership, focusing on others and becoming the best you can be in whatever it is that you do. That's it. Thank you so much, Shelley. Thank you. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, to enable you to step up and operate at a higher level, shift from doing to leading. Shelley offered that this is not an easy transition. When you do something well, the default behavior is to do it yourself. As you step into leading, it is about getting results through other people. And Shelley suggested that it begins in finding the confidence to trust the people around you, the confidence that they can grow into the opportunities you create for them. Second, reflect on your network. In business, in the beginning and in the end, it is about relationships, not just in the sense of who you know, but even more so in the sense of how those people experience you and what have you created in your work together. Shelley offered that he likes and enjoys people. This is a powerful trait for a leader. What do you enjoy about the people you're with? And how can you help them this week, even today? Third, look for opportunities to give back. In the giving, there is even a greater receiving, and one that lasts longer because it creates ripples that impact others who then proceed to create further chains of impact. Discover where you can excel as a servant leader, and the rewards that will find you will continue to compound and bring esteem and joy to your life. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. Creating your new future can begin today.